and everybody has it back again. Don't take no mess at the rose garden. Jesus, they're on fire. They're what we desire. The men in black can handle it. Other teams can scrapple it. How they win that game today? There's just one thing you can say. How does Scotty shoot that three? Believe it, it ain't easy. How did Brian jump so sweet? Believe it, it ain't easy. It's the flying dot that's in your lap. Welcome back to the Rose Garden Report podcast. I'm Sean Hyken, the author of the Rose Garden Report newsletter, which you can subscribe to at rosegardenreport.com. You can get the podcast, as always, on the Odyssey app, as well as YouTube. Make sure you're subscribed on YouTube. Even if you're not watching it on YouTube, subscribing helps me. And then Apple, Spotify, all of that stuff, rate, review, do all the usual stuff you do with podcasts. I'm really excited about the episode I have for you today. Uh, The biggest news in the NBA over the last couple of weeks is that the league and the players union have a tentative agreement on a new CBA. So a, there's not going to be a lockout, which I think is great news for everybody, but also there's a lot of new elements as far as how it affects team building and how it affects, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, the different like structures of the league and, you know, how guys make money. It's a, it's a lot of interesting stuff to get into. All the details are still not fully out on it. And once they are, I'm going to have stuff on the site about how it impacts the Blazers, but I'm kind of waiting for all the official stuff to come out before I really write anything on that. But in order to really break this stuff down with somebody who has followed it closely from, you know, throughout the whole process of the the whole negotiation process and the bargaining process, I brought back on a return guest, Mike Vorkanov, who covers the business of basketball for The Athletic. He was on the show back in... August or September or something like that uh, during the off season to talk about, you know, some blazer sales stuff, some expansion stuff. Uh, We get into a little bit of that here, but we mostly get into a lot of stuff about like the CBA and how that, you know, how the new luxury tax stuff is going to affect team building. And also like the status of the new TV deal. We get into a little bit of the WNBA stuff, but if you're interested in like the NBA business stuff and how that's going to maybe evolve over the next few years and how, this is going to affect roster building. This is a really good discussion. I learned a lot from it. I think you're going to learn a lot from it too. Mike is great. Mike covers this stuff as you know as well as anybody does in, in the league and in the business. So I think you're really going to enjoy this discussion. So let's get to it. So Mike, I want to start here. Going into these negotiations, what was the thing, just from your understanding and from people that you've talked to, what was the thing that each side was the most concerned about as far as, like, we really want this out of the CBA? Like, what what was the thing that the players wanted the most and what was the thing that the owners wanted the most in the league? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like for the league, the big priority was, um, you know, that upper spending limit, a.k.a. a hard cap. But yeah. really, I mean, the, the euphemism. <laughs> Right. The hard cap never was like a thing that was going to happen, I think. Right. Um, so it was really just a way to restrict those highest spending teams, the Warriors, the Nets, um, the Clippers. Well, the Nets in previous years, this year they sloughed off like, what, $100 million yeah, basically right, right, right. right at the deadline. Um, so it was just finding a way to, to rein those teams in, I think, primarily. And I think on the player side, you know, it was a number of things. They've ever since Tamika Tramaglia has come into position as the executive director for the w uh, for the uh, mbpa you know i i think a big thing for her has been wealth building um Mm -hmm. for the players and so it's of course uh getting their wins within the context of the cba and the actual financial system of the nba but i think it's also been uh finding ways to create wealth to be able to make more money uh within the within the larger nba ecosystem and all the stuff that the nba governs uh with the cba yeah, the wealth building thing is interesting, and I think the update, because for those of you at home who have just been following this, the actual term sheet of the CBA, as we're, re- we're recording this on Thursday morning, the term sheet is not actually out yet. All any of us know is, I mean, you've done some reporting on it, you and Shams at The Athletic, and then Woj and his people at ESPN, but all we really know is what's out there and what's been reported just kind of in little bits and pieces. The actual term sheet, as far as I know, hasn't actually been 
like circulated to teams yet with the actual hard details of what's been agreed on and what's you know actually going to be in the document once it's ratified but the thing that i think got the most attention just based on what i saw on twitter when you bring up the wealth building thing was the idea that NBA players are now allowed to quote unquote invest in NBA teams and WNBA teams. And when that detail first came out, people were like, wait, what the hell? Like, how's that going to work? But I mean, it seems pretty straightforward that basically the players are going to be able to invest in this hedge fund that, that or this private equity fund that then invests in teams. So it's like more of a passive investment. The part of that update that I'm still a little confused about, and I'm wondering if you have a little bit of clarity on how this is actually going to work that like the passive investment in teams like that that part seems pretty straightforward the players are allowed to invest in cannabis companies part is also pretty straightforward since it's like mostly legal in, in a lot of places to me that's no different than like cj mccollum owning a vineyard but players being allowed to invest and do endorsement deals in sports betting companies that's the part to me that I'm still trying to figure out. Like, how are you going to be able to do that without it getting messy and avoiding conflicts and making sure everybody knows that everything is above board? Do you know anything about that and how that's going to actually work? Well, I, I think it's going to be a situation where players can, again, you know, endorse uh, Sportsbook X. They're not paying me, so I'm not naming names. Sure. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, they can endorse a Sportsbook X as they do, you know, uh, uh, any other company mm -hmm. that they endorse, right? Like be a sponsor for that and they can take an equity stake. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen this on the team side and the NBA side too, right? Like they have partnership deals right. with sports books, uh, you know, pretty much as soon as sports betting, mobile sports betting is legalized in the state. Um, you see them working with a team or having signage in an arena, right? Like, and so we've seen it happen on the league and the team side, and now we see it on the player side. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think that will be an issue in terms of like the integrity of the game, mm -hmm. that type of stuff. Um, you know, I think there's a lot more money to be made if you try, if you kind of just think about it. Um, realistically, there's a lot more money to be made for a player within with his NBA salary uh, than there is whatever the possible equity stake probably is in the sports book. Um, especially with how much salaries have risen over the last decade and how much they'll continue to rise. Um, and, you know, I, I think the same thing would apply, right? Like for a team, if they get into business with a sports book, just as it would for an individual player. Uh, and, and so that's how I think it's going to work. I, you know, obviously we'll see the details, right? Like the term sheet should be out, I think, sometime soon. Um, we'll see the details as they're actually then written into the CBA, right? Like there's a term sheet. And there's the actual CBA that's going to be written, uh, which is going to be like 50 billion times longer. Yeah. Um, and so we'll see how, how everything is written um, in the final document. But I, I think that's primarily how it's going to work. So you have an investment stake. Um, you're not, even when you're a sponsor, you're not going to be out, you know, you're not going to see a player like tweeting a video saying, hey, here's my three best bets today. Um, right. Like we see. You know, it's going to be like, hey, use this sports book if you're thinking about losing some money today. I think that's probably how it's going to go. Um, but if, it's a, and, if a player is like an investor in, or not an, even, an, even an investor, but like an, doing an endorsement deal with, I'm allowed to, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm not getting paid by any of these companies either, but like just for the sake of example, the one that's legal in, the only, so sports betting is legal in Oregon, but DraftKings has an exclusive agreement with the state. So DraftKings is the only one that legally in Portland, like can, can do business. Let's say a player has, you know, an endorsement deal with DraftKings where they're doing, you know, you know, just, you know, just like, do, like just doing an ad for DraftKings, like you said. Mm -hmm. Can DraftKings then have props about that player's over under? Like, I feel like there would have to be some. Kind no, that's of an interesting question. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And maybe that's something that um, that they've negotiated and will be hashed out when the CBA does come out. It, it is an interesting question, right? Like what happens if you have over-unders and all that type of stuff? I mean, I would say uh, even if they do have over-unders, right, it doesn't actually impact the player, right. so to speak, right? Like it's not as if uh, I assume, um, and I think this would probably be preempted by the CBA because, again, players still can't gamble, right? Right. Um, I assume that like, it's not like, Hey, if, uh, it, you know, if, if the majority of the handle is on the over, 
um, and you get to the under, we'll give you X percent of that handle. Like that, it's not going to work like that, right? Like right. there still will not be an incentive, I think, an incentive structure in place um, to incentivize the player to actually care about what those numbers are. The thing that worries me, I totally, be- I totally agree that like they're going to do everything they can to make sure that it's above board and there, that there's no actual conflicts there. The part of that that worries me a little bit is just what the public perception of it is going to be. Because we just saw a couple weeks ago, Bradley Beal and some fan got into it. And, and you know, now the, the details are coming out that the uh, origin of that little altercation that they had was the player or was the fan being mad that they lost some money on some bet that Bradley Beal. Like, if a player has some sort of, you know, business arrangement with the sports book, like, isn't that just going to lead to, even if there's not actually anything shady going on or any, you know, and everything is totally legit and everything is above board and all that, isn't that just going to increase the perception publicly? Like, like if, you know, the, the next time, because you, you know this is going to keep happening. Like, that's like, like some, some fan, like you see it all the time, like on Instagram, like a, a player will post a picture and fans will comment, like, yeah, hey, yeah. it cost me X money on my part. Like, isn't that just going to increase, like, the public perception that, like, that, that like this is even if it's not actually going on isn't like i i kind of worry about the optics of it is all yeah i think the optics thing is legit um you know i, I can see the concern about that and, and you know i think if look the more the leagues like lean into sports betting mm-hmm. uh the more now that you're going to see teams players like leaning into it it has the more there's a chance that this all gets to be really noxious right yeah. like it already is to some degree but i i think you know if you have a thing now where you have a specific player advertising uh being a part of the advertisements for a sports book right and then like as you said maybe if there's props about them and it gets to a place like where they you know some better whatever loses whatever side of that prop is on them like yeah it could get even more venomous right because now you have a direct person to look to who's not only lured you into betting on something uh but is also you know part of the reason why you didn't hit on your bet like yeah these are all things that i think um from a perception issue i think are real um Obviously, the league and the players have decided that the financial benefit of that outweighs the, you know, the optics of this whole situation. That's their choice. We'll see how it works out for everybody uh, in the long run, right? Yeah, the part of this that I, I, I just, I feel like a lot of that, that, that stuff, and we're going to get to the actual basketball and like team building stuff in a second. I just kind of, since you, you brought up that that was like the biggest issue for the players, that was something I wanted to just kind of unwind a little sure. bit. But, uh, but I wonder if during these negotiations they all just kind of had these ideas for like oh this seems great on paper that the players can get a piece of this and then they didn't really think through like kind of what the unintended consequences are going to be that's kind of that was immediately my react because like because like we said the 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 private equity firm invest doing passive investments in teams is fine the cannabis companies is like that's whatever but like this is one where i'm just like i don't know if they really thought this through all the way I look, I'm sure they thought it through. Like there's always unintended, unintended consequences to a lot of these things, right? Like uh-huh. if they, if they knew they were going to be, they would probably be intended consequences, right? right. Uh, there's just some things that come up that probably were not, um, you know, considered before, or at least like just changes in behavior that were not predictable or something like that. But again, like everyone's trying to make more money, right? Like, so this is a decision that's being made. Um, We'll see how it works out. I don't know. I mean, listen, the more that everyone like gets further and further into sports betting across the country, right? Mm-hmm. Like we see what happens. Um, the, and the, the, this country, I think is uh, what, four years now into legalized sports betting, right? We're still in the infancy stages of all this. Not every state has passed it. Um, not every state with an NBA team has passed it. Um, but we're already kind of like, we're only ankle deep. So we'll see how this all kind of plays out in the long run. I think this will probably, um, you know, expand it a little bit, but it's not, it's not going to accelerate the trend, right? Like that's happening regardless. Right. Now, as far as the other thing you brought up at the top, the thing that was the main issue for the owners, they wanted a hard cap. They was obviously always going to be a non-starter with the players. They were never going to get that, but the, quote-unquote second tax apron 
that basically prevents like if you're a team like the Warriors or the Clippers are the two that currently are under it that have that are over that number that have you know these just massive massive payrolls. Once that you know once you get there like you're not able to use the mid level exception. You can't send out cash in trades. You can't send you can't take back more salary than you get back and you know as it would affect portland like last year at the deadline the clippers wouldn't have been able to do that norm powell robert covington trade because they were taking back more salary than they sent out to portland but basically all of this stuff i i've seen like when this stuff first came out a lot of the dialogue that i saw online was a lot of you know concern about like oh this is going to make it harder for teams to draft and develop and keep their players and it turns out really what it is is making it so that yeah, the Warriors can re-sign Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green. Or I, I, I guess I guess to use like a younger example, like an example of a team that maybe isn't like towards the end of their run. Mm-hmm. The Cavs are still going to be able to re-sign. You know, they 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 signed Darius Garland to the big extension. They traded for Donovan Mitchell, who's on a max, and like when he gets his next deal, he can still get the most money. They'll be able to give Evan Mobley as much money as he can get, but. Whoever, you know, if you're a team at that level of spending, if you're, you know, the Warriors or the Clippers, now you can't use the mini mid-level to sign somebody like Dante DiVincenzo, who probably would have been able to get more than that somewhere else, but wanted to take less to go to a, you know, a contender, and you can get a guy at way below market value who's actually been a big help to them. That, to me, is kind of more what this was aimed at, is so that, you know, those types of teams can't also then sign good role players on a discount. Yeah. I don't think this impacts player retention, right? Like if you have good players already on your team, um, you're still gonna be able to, to keep them. It seems yeah. like, uh, unless there's something else that I just don't know about yet. Um, it's going to be player, uh, you know, acquisition, right? Like being able to sign guys uh, for the, for the taxpayer mid-level, you know, being able to, played for uh trade for players on larger salary slots right like now it seems like it has to be one-to-one um if you are above that second apron but i I think if you're a team that's like got four you know like like you said the Cavs, like you have those four guys and you want to go over the apron the second apron to keep them you're gonna be able to keep them Uh, i think it puts a premium on the draft now for those types of teams and i wonder like what the impact is going to be on team behavior um, because now the draft might be really one of your few pathways to get those kind of cheap players, right? That you need to fill out the roster and still be able to play and be productive if you've got a bunch of either max guys or near max salaries on there. So, um, yeah, you know, maybe maybe in, uh, in future years, like a team like the Warriors doesn't sign Dante DiVincenzo. Um, I don't know if it really matters if they can't sign anyone in the buyout market. Usually those are just not really impact players no, altogether. Really not. And I wonder how much this will, you know, impact um, team behavior for those types of teams anyway, because, you know, like, I assume if that's what you have to spend and you're willing to spend that kind of money to keep your potential title contending teams together, you're still going to do it and try to work it within the new parameters. Yeah, and what you bring up actually just had something pop into my head. I wonder if, because you've seen the last few times uh one of these quote-unquote blockbuster trades has happened whether it's the Suns trading for Kevin Durant at the deadline or over the summer the Rudy Gobert Donovan Mitchell trades and then to a lesser extent the DeJounte Murray trade with Atlanta all of those trades saw teams the team trading for the big star or the guy that they thought was going to make them a contender and you know in the Cavs case it worked in the Timberwolves case maybe not so much but all those teams were giving up like multiple unprotected first round picks because that's just like the asking price. And I feel like, and you know, for, from a Blazers perspective, my understanding and what I've, you know, said on here and written a bunch of times is that Portland's plan this summer, assuming they can get the stuff with the Chicago pick figured out, their plan is to whoever the next one of those stars is that's out there, they're going to put all their stuff in and trade a bunch of picks and a bunch of players and stuff to try to get one of those guys but if you're if there's now this limit on you know bringing in guys on the mid level if you're at a certain salary level and getting a guy in the draft and having them controllable at a cheap number for a num- for a few years is really the best way for good teams to add talent i wonder if that's going to change whether the teams that are trying to get those types of players in the first place are going to be willing to trade as many first round picks if now there's such a premium on the draft 
Yeah, maybe you could on the, on the margins, right? But if you're end-all, be-all, still acquiring a, you know, an all-star or star-level player, uh-huh. uh, eventually, you know, to get the deal done, you're going to have to get the deal done. Um, so maybe maybe instead of, you know, five first-round picks, maybe it'll go down <laughs> to four or something like that. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't, I'm guessing at this point. I, I'm really very curious to see how all of this is impacted, right? Like, every team is still trying to, you know – not every team, but, you know, most teams when they make those trades, they're still trying to win titles, right? They're still trying to get one of those 10, 15 best players in the league. And sometimes there's just a cost of doing business to that. And so I, I wonder if this will just be more on the margins more than anything else, rather than preempting any, you know, any of those star player trades or, or anything like that. And, you know, in the case of like some of those teams, even that have acquired star level players, like we saw Atlanta, uh, you know, trade what was it three first round picks for DeJounte Murray but they were still trying to avoid the tax this season right like financial considerations still come into play even if you are trading away multiple first round picks into the future yeah and I wonder because and like I've talked to a few different people like I've talked to different you know agents and front office folks about this just based on the details and by the way since the term sheet hasn't been written yet people in front offices and agents only know what we know as far as what's been out there and what's been reported they don't have details about it that we don't have because the term sheet is still being written but i was talking to an agent that i know about this the other day and i brought up the idea that like i wonder if you know, this second tax threshold is going to discourage teams from, if this is going to be just something that, you know, the teams that don't want to spend money are going to use as an excuse to not spend money. And the point that the agent made to me is that there's, the players are still guaranteed a certain percentage of the, mm-hmm. of the revenue. So it's not going to actually change how much total money the players get. But I do wonder from a team building perspective and from a fans, you know, if you're a fan of a team, and you want your team to go all in and try to spend as much money as possible to get the best team possible and, you know, try to go for a title. I wonder if there's going to be a perception that some of these teams are basically now have this second tax apron as like a go-to excuse for, Hey, well, we couldn't spend this much money because then we'd be up against the, like, I wonder if it's going to discourage teams from really even trying to, you know, get even close to that number. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. It, it's kind of interesting because, you know, that's that's been the big thing about this CBA, too, is like the BRI split hasn't been affected, right? It's right. still in that it's still um, you know, ra- roughly 50-50 uh-huh. split. Um, and so really the things that the league were pushing for, even, if, you know, like hypothetically, even if they got their upper spending limit, um, it wasn't at the cost of the BRI, right? Like the players were still getting their percentage. And here the players are still getting their percentage. Really, this is an attempt to curb the actions of their most, you know, highest spending owners and teams, right? This is almost internecine for the owners in the way that the CBA has come out um, rather than kind of against the players as we've seen in past years. And so, it'll, you know, I, I don't know. It, it might be that like maybe some teams want to use the second apron as an excuse and say, you know, we don't want to go there because it'll limit what we can do in terms of team building um I, I still have to see where the tax penalties come out for hitting all these now you essentially have uh i think it's four financial quadrants right right you have sub luxury tax you have between luxury tax and the apron apron the, the second apron and then second apron and above so we'll see what the tax penalties look like on all, on all of those um I, I think my understanding is that while it's really trying to curb um you know create more punishments for teams above those second apron uh it does seem like it's gonna be easier to maneuver for teams that are you know, below the first apron, right? Like, I, I think the penalties are going to be less if you're over the tax. Um, so it's not as punitive. So maybe it'll kind of allow more teams to go into the tax every year as well. And so, uh, you know, maybe that brings up fewer excuses now for an owner who says, or for a GM who says, hey, we don't go into the tax. Well, it's not as painful anymore for you to go into the tax. So why didn't you make that kind of trade or free agency acquisition, right? So we'll see. We, uh, the hardest thing for all this is we have to see what like the entire CBA is, right? Right. Uh, because these things do work all in, as part of a system rather than just isolated rules um, out there in a vacuum. What do you know about how this stuff is going to be phased in? They there's been some reporting out there that these new this new you know the second apron and the penalties for it are gonna it's not gonna be suddenly this year once the cba goes into effect in july 
suddenly all these rules are just in place. It sounds like it's going to be eased in it's like over the course of multiple years. Do you know anything about how that's going to work or how gradual that is or when certain things are going to go into effect? Or is that still just not out there yet? Yeah, I, you know, I think what, what's been reported is out there, obviously. And um, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen immediately. That would be unfair to teams that have been working under one CBA and planning right. for this summer under one CBA. And then like three months before, you're like, hey, uh, we're changing the rules on you, right? Um, I, I think harsher, some harsher tax penalties will take into effect in 2025. We're going to have uh, caps moving when the next CBA, uh, sorry, when the next uh, TV rights deal comes in in 2025. So we're not going to have the same big spike like we saw in 2016. Um, but yeah, this is all going to be grad- gradual and give teams time to be able to plan for all these and change paths, right? Especially if you are trying to, you know, kind of, punish teams that are like above that second apron, you at least have to give them a chance to get out of there potentially if they want to. Um, so we'll see how all of this works out, but I, I think it's not going to be all immediate all on July one. Where do you land on the midseason tournament? Yeah. yeah, that's kind of my reaction to it. Also, like I'm willing to give it a shot. I don't think it's like, I, I don't think it's like this gene. I, I understand why, like like Adam Silver is pushing for it because it's an extra thing to sell to whichever partner as far as like broadcast rights and stuff. I get it, and I get the idea that it's like a thing to you know you know get people to care about the regular season. I just I wonder how much people are going to care about it. And by people, I mean fans. Like you know, if 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 let's say a team like. I don't know, like, because the thing is going to be in December. Portland was still doing pretty well in December before their season went sideways. Let's say Portland were to win the midseason tournament, and they got this trophy, and Damian Lillard got like MVP of the of the Adam Silver, you know, presented by DraftKings midseason cup or whatever. Uh, are and, and then you know, like, you know, they're celebrating it. They're are they they're even like hanging a banner, and then like the greater discourse is, oh, this is just another thing that they did. That's not a Larry O'Brien trophy. That's the only thing. Like, I feel like we're still like, for like the greater like, you know, what's going to get talked about by among fans and what's going to get talked about on debate shows. I feel like this is still something that people aren't going to view as legitimate. And if you're a player, some of the younger players who are maybe on their first contract or are on like two way contracts. That $500,000 per player cash bonus for the winner, that's pretty significant. But, like, LeBron doesn't need that money. LeBron's not going to get up for this when he could be saving his body for the actual playoffs. That's kind of where I come down on it. Like, I don't think it's a bad idea, and I think it could be kind of cool in practice. But I just wonder how much people are going to care about it. Yeah, and that's a that's going to be kind of the interest for me, too, is, like, you know, who will be the who's the the crowd for this you know i think it could obviously like create some more premium nba watching nights and say mm-hmm. for the final four and the final right uh, create some more interest around then um in terms of the financials right like if you're a rookie if you're early in your career if you're uh you haven't made a lot of money five hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money uh that, so you see the incentive for them and I, I think at some point like even if it's not a uh you know even if it's not like a playoff game I, I think even the stars will really get interested just be able to like play in a very competitive game early in the season I, I think that'll play out like you know obviously the model for this is something along the lines of what we see in European soccer yeah um I think the difference is in European soccer when you have these you know tournaments that play over the course of the year you're playing teams that usually don't play here it's the same thing the same 30 teams um that the NBA teams always play and, and in the future that could change we we heard Adam Silver say that um, at the All-Star Game press conference last month, uh, February, two months ago, uh, where he said, he, you know, maybe we could see some European teams get into the fray uh, years down the line. And we'll see if that's actually the case, right, to make it a more international model. And that would be pretty cool. Um, but for now, you know, we'll see how it plays out. I thought the playing tournament um, actually turned out, like, really great. Um, I was maybe a little skeptical at first, but I think the product has been awesome. And uh, maybe they have ways to tweak this. And, and maybe it's just, as you said, you know, my theory is that this is just another kind of package that you can sell off to a third rights bidder uh, and create a way in for streaming to potentially get some, uh, you know, get a rights package early on, especially if it goes in and starts next season ahead of the next TV rights deal. And, then, you know, that's a value to the league. But, you know, I think they're just trying to find a way to make the, the league a little more spicy throughout the course of a year. 
where do you understand that things are at right now with the TV negotiations? Do you know anything about like where that's at or, you know, when that might get done, who's going to be in the mix outside of just ESPN and Turner? Like what, like what, what's, what's going on with that right now? I don't think there's much there yet. You know, I, I'll have something, I'm planning to write something on it in the next week or so or whatever, but um, I think it's still early days on those things. They just got through the CBA. So now I think the NBA is going to move on to um, the TV deal stuff, right? They have to, it's, it's almost sequential, finish the CBA. Then you're trying to get to uh, the TV rights and move on from there. And so I don't think we'll see anything really heat up until 2024, I would imagine, or somewhere around the end of 2023, somewhere around there. And yeah, and we we but we still think that do we like do you think ESPN and Turner are both going to stay in the mix or are both going to stay in the in, you know in business with the NBA because you you hear all these like like there's all these like rumor like 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 the CEO of Turner or of Turner Sports said like oh we don't need the NBA right after they signed Shaq and Charles Barkley and all the inside guys to ten year extensions so I don't know how much I buy that you know ESPN is cutting costs across the board like. Uh, how much do you like? Do you do? You, would you expect just predicting it and based on what you know? Do you think that both ESPN and Turner are going to be involved in the next TV deal? I think ESPN will. Um, I think Turner maybe more limited capacity. I don't know. It, it's hard to figure out. You know, I think those deals for uh, for the inside the NBA guys didn't they have three year outs too, just in case something happened where they uh, they didn't retain the rights. Uh, You'd know more and- about that than I would. I believe I believe that was a report that was out there. Um, but yeah, I think ESPN will. I think they're just like a vital league part, partner. And obviously um, that provides a level of visibility that Turner doesn't and can't match just because of their business, right? Uh, I, I'm curious to see where all the bidders will be. I mean, some of it is just public posturing at this point, right? Um, but, you know, having listened to or read through a number of transcripts for the Warner Brothers Discovery um media calls and all all their stuff like they have been serious about trying to throttle costs um you know they're they had a lot of cost uh and debt that they ate up once the merger happened and so i think they're trying to work through that and so i think there's just maybe less appetite it seems like from everything that they've said for going in on like a super premium very expensive type of package but um we'll see what it all works out right we still have uh a year and a half until uh, the new the new deal kicks in, and um, it'll be very interesting. It'll be very interesting to see what the final package looks like and how we're all going to have to watch the NBA in a year and a half. And that would be, you know, if if Turner decides to not completely cut their ties but scale back on it, like maybe only have the Thursday package and not also have the Tuesday, and maybe they have a little bit of a lesser playoff package. That would be where one of these streaming partners, whether it's Apple or Amazon or Hulu or whatever the case may be, that's where one of these other ones comes in, right? Probably to, uh, to you know, recoup some of that money if you're the league. Like maybe, you know, you take a little bit of less of a package from Turner, but then, you know, Amazon, the Amazon midseason tournament, and then Amazon gets one game a week like they do with Thursday Night Football now, or, you know, Apple does with, the, with their baseball broadcast. I also wonder if, the, you know, th- there was all this publicity earlier in the, uh, like at the beginning of the season that the NBA completely cut the price in half for the league pass subscription. And immediately alarm bells kind of went off in my head about that being, they want to get the total number of league pass subscribers up so that then they can go to Apple or Amazon or whoever and say, hey, we have this number of subscribers. You should give us this much money. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But I, I think probably like what they're trying to do, I think maybe it was less about um, doing that. I think it was more so kind of creating a place in the NBA watching ecosystem for the NBA ID app too, right? Mm-hmm. That rolled out in uh, what was it, September or October. And that's a thing that the NBA is really trying to make happen as like a home for uh, its digital content and its digital video that I think you can watch games through there and highlights and all that type of yeah. stuff. And I think they're just trying to put those things to work in tandem with one another. I, like, I doubt we'll see like an NBA thing, uh, NBA version of what the MLS did, right? Going all in on Apple TV. Um, and I think like whatever, whatever the NBA does with the next media rights deal, I don't think they're wedded to just like maintaining the same type of um, windows, TV windows that they have now. I, th- I think they'll probably try to get creative in terms of who they can pull in and also 
um, what opportunities those new partners would have. I don't see Turner getting completely out of the business of being in business with the NBA, if, if only because Turner runs NBA TV. Like they would have to find a new provider for that. Like I've I've been to the studio, the the NBA TV studio where they do like they like their studio show, is right next to the studio where they film inside for TNT. So like at the very minimum, like I'm sure they are going to have this like an arrangement, even if even if Turner pulls out of like having as much stuff on TNT and having as much of the marquee stuff, they're going to have to either sell off NBA TV and sell off like that studio and all that space and all the, you know, physical logistical stuff with that, or they're going to have to at least continue running NBA TV. Right. Yeah. No, I'm not like, I want to be clear. I'm not like predicting that Turner gets out of it or anything like that. Right. You know, they could still, you know, I I don't know. We'll see what it all looks like. I'm just saying, um, I'm curious to see what the, the new, package will be starting in 2025 and just how everything is allocated and so i'm saying i wouldn't be surprised if there's less potentially like less turner or something like that how do you think all the rsn stuff is going to end up playing out for the nba with bally's declaring bankruptcy you're seeing a lot of like you know talk about how that's going to work in baseball i think you know the idea is that this is all happening like within the last month and there's so little left in the season that they're not really worried about it right now but Let's say that Bally's and Diamond Sports is not doing better financially by the fall when next season starts, and they have 82 games per team to broadcast for, like, half the teams in the league. Like, how do you see the whole RSN thing shaking out long term? Yeah, that's a mess. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's hard to predict at this point. I mean, right now, like, the NBA seems pretty confident that they'll still get their payments. Um from diamond obviously like you said like the end of this year's there's not much left i think um local tv also gets first uh, first round coverage too if those teams make um the playoffs and so i think they've been obviously in negotiations with diamond about um not only the payments owed to them this year but any potential renegotiations and uh you know ways to so that all the teams can still get payments from diamond going forward um it's in bankruptcy court now uh you know there is the chance that this all kind of gets derailed and that uh i'm not an expert on bankruptcy court yet and hopefully i'll get there one day but you know you have to almost structure who gets paid out when and in what order and all these types of things and renegotiate um contracts potentially so that the con- uh, the company can become solvent and, and all these types of things but i think the nba is trying to also prepare for a post rsn future um you know, dependent, almost independent of uh, whether and how the diamond thing works out. And so I think that more teams will try to get some kind of streaming option in market. You saw that already in, at least here in New York, where I am, you see MSG Plus and Yes Network's um, direct-to-consumer products all get launched recently. Clippers uh, too. So the Clippers, obviously, in L.A., um, you know, aside from even the RSNs that are having financial issues, right, there's also just a bunch of markets where it's really hard to watch your team on TV, period, right? Um, at least in New York, like MSU was on Comcast for the last two seasons. Uh, in Denver, you know, I think a majority of the market has been unable to watch the Nuggets for four seasons now. That's crazy. Um, Here in so Portland, that's... it's an issue, too. Uh, I mean, yeah. but since, they, since they're, they're in year two of this Root Sports deal where – you can get it on Comcast, you can get it on DirecTV, you can get it on Dish. I think they just added Spectrum. I saw a tweet about that the other day. So for cable, if you have cable, you can you can still get it pretty much. But for, you know, more and more people are cutting cable. And the only, as of right now, the only streaming platform that Root is on is Fubo. Like if you have YouTube TV or you have Hulu or you have one of the other major streaming platforms and this is something that the blazers have nothing to do with because they don't own root sports they basically just license their games out to root sports and root does whatever deals they do with whatever providers they do it with but here's another wrinkle that i just thought like i had thought about this before but it just popped into my head while we were talking about this this is it seems like as much as like adam silver has talked in the past about like we're not completely wedded to an 82 game season. And, you know, that's been talked about as like, maybe you cut a num- the number of games, you cut it from either maybe like 82 to 72 or 82 to 70 to either like make the regular season quote unquote matter more or reduce back to backs or reduce load management or any of that. And the pushback has always been, 
players don't want to give up game checks. Owners don't want to give up gate receipts. I wonder if if there's really going to be a post-RSN world in five to ten years, if that model is going away. It seems to me, and you would know more about this than I would, you've studied this more than I have, but it seems to me like a lot of why they are still on that 82-game season is because their contracts with these RSNs and these local TV providers require them to deliver a certain number of games. I remember during COVID when they were negotiating the bubble and whether they were going to go straight to the playoffs or to have like the seeding games, there was a number of games that every team needed to get to in the regular season in order to satisfy the RSN requirements. I wonder if, if RSNs go away and that part of like, we have to have this much inventory of games. I wonder if, if that, if that were to happen, that's would make it more of a feasible thing for the league to actually change what the schedule looks like and cut the number of games. If there's not also like, we have to deliver this many games to the local TV networks. And if that wasn't like a factor to consider. Well, I mean, like, they also have to deliver games to, you know, their national partners right. over the course of a year, too, right? So that would be fewer games that they can deliver there, um, fewer games that you could potentially deliver to a streamer. That's fewer gates, right? That are, right. Those are also pretty still valuable. Um, and I, I think if RSNs go down, e- you know, even if the contracts get renegotiated, like, I, I think the future is that you're just going to be making less proportionally from your RSNs than you do from your national media rights from marketing sponsorships with sports books uh, from all of these places that maybe just the importance of the RSN is dwindling already. So if they really needed to find a way or wanted to get down to uh, let's say 72 games, like I don't think the RSNs would be the reason to do it. I, you've heard Adam Silver kind of talk about it in the last few years too, about fiddling around with the length of the season. But when he did it, he talked about it in context of from my, I think if I remember correctly from in context of, um, how it would help their national TV media rights, less so than any concern about how it impact their RSN contract and, and all that type of stuff. And so I, I don't think that would be a reason to, um, if they needed to, like shorten the season. I, I think there's a lot of things that go into play for that. One more thing I want to hit on before I get out of here is uh, this is something that you and I talked about the last time you were on with me and what, September, October, whenever that was. And then also, you know, something you've done a lot of reporting on at The Athletic is the WNBA expansion. And Portland obviously is very much, from what I understand, still in the mix. They had this big event here locally a couple months ago that I covered where Senator Wyden brought Kathy Engelbert into town and a bunch of Blazers and Thorns executives basically gave her the sell on why Portland should get a team. As far as I know, they're still very much in the mix, but we don't, we still don't really have a hard timeline on when that's going to happen or, you know, which teams are in which position to get it. Like, what do you, what do you, this is something you've covered extensively and I'm sure something you're still tracking. Like what, what do you know about that right now? Yeah, I think the W is still looking right. Um, I, I haven't heard anything. Uh, stronger definitive in the last few months I've gotten derailed <laughs> admittedly by like CBA stuff and right. some other things um, yeah I think Portland has a has a good chance for sure and, and you know I think it's a question of how many teams and a question of when um, you know I know W I think probably wants to increase its schedule too they have a season high 40 games I think for the 2023 season and I wouldn't be surprised if they try to keep increasing that um, you know Nearby, you know, the Seattle Storm just went for $151 million valuation. Um, they announced, I think it was in February, right? Like, that's a super high for a WNBA team. And I, I wonder how much of that can help publicly reset the market. I think that's a big thing for the W, too, is they want to reset franchise values. Um, and I think that goes into its, its expansion process, is that when they do have these new teams, um, that they come at come in at the right number. Uh, they want to make sure that W teams are valued more than they have been in the past few years. Uh, I think there's a reason why when you've had um, WNBA team sales over the last like half decade, you haven't heard a number attached to it, right? It's not like the same thing as the NBA where the Suns sell for $4 billion and there's a press release saying the Suns have sold at a valuation of $4 billion. Uh, it's completely different and much more opaque in the W. And so I, I think that's kind of where they're at. They're trying to change the, you know, almost the financial ecosystem of the entire league, change the valuations of WNBA teams, and, along with trying to figure out which city should get it. And so um, 
I'll, I'm look, I'm very curious, like where it all ends up. I think Portland makes a, is a great candidate for a city and um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see where it goes. You know, the Kathy Engelbert, Engelbert told um, me and Chantel Jennings back, I think it was last June that she, she thought um, they would have a team named or, you know, one or two teams, expansion teams named by the end of the season, if not the end of 2022. And here we are. And we don't, as far as the NBA goes, we, we think order of operations. They got the CBA done. They get the TV deal done by 25. And then we think 26 or 27 is when they look at Seattle and Vegas as the next teams. Is that kind of where that's at still? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know the timeline on all that. Like the, the actual timeline, you're right in that. Like they, you know, have said CBA, media rights, and then they'll move on to talking about expansion. I don't know what years that would be. I don't know what years they are eyeing. Uh-huh. Um you know, I, I think for sure uh, Vegas and, uh, and and Seattle look like the prohibitive favorites, but, um, you know. They're really pushing this be... Mexico City thing. <laughs> no, I think the reason why is, and like, I forget who I was talking to, but one interesting thing is when you consider if you're moving to streaming and you're trying to sell stream yourself as a streaming product, right, that opens you up from a media rights perspective, uh, from just having to think nationally, right? If you have an international audience that you can now serve, that does make you more valuable to a stream to a streamer, right? Like ESPN and TNT uh, are just American TV channels, right? That's where their money comes from. But if you're going to a streamer, they have the entire world as a potential audience, and that could be the value of an international city like Mexico City to the NBA. And you know that would be a big check mark in, in their column, I think, um, for you know why they would deserve a team. Now, I'm not saying that's like happening at all. But I'm just saying, like, I understand the argument for Mexico City or for any other potential, like, uh, expansion to, to outside of America. You, I mean, have to makes- consider, you have to consider the, the global product now, especially if you're going to be um, no longer just, you know, set on linear television as your primary dispensation for your product. You have to consider what's going to work best for you and can bring in more fans, sell more products uh, internationally, too. Do we know the valuation yet for the Hornets, the, state, you know, the majority stake that Michael Jordan is selling? Do we know the number on that yet? No, I don't yet. Okay. If you do, let me know. No, I don't. I don't because I've, 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 I've been tracking that very closely. Obviously, the Suns going for four completely reset the market in the same way that when the Clippers went for two in 2014, that, was like a, that like blew everybody out of the water at the time when Steve Ballmer paid that. Obviously, I'm tracking this stuff now because I think Charlotte is a little bit closer to Portland as far as like what their price might be versus what the Blazers' price is ultimately going to be whenever the Vulcans end up deciding to sell. So that's something I'm tracking. I part of me feels like I don't I don't know anything concrete about when the Blazer sale is going to happen. I think there's actually a chance it happens this year, but that's just based on you know secondhand stuff that I've heard. That's not like hard reporting or anything, but. It seems like the thing everybody was waiting on was for the Suns to reset the market and go for whatever they went for after the whole Robert Sarver, you know, scandal happened. And now that they set the market at four, then I think some of these other teams like the Blazers and the Hornets that are maybe smaller market teams might come in closer to three or a little over three. And that's going to be the number now. Is that kind of the sense you've gotten is that three, like, like, like. The Jazz and the Timberwolves went for like 1.5, 1.6 each. Do you think two is kind of the baseline now that the Suns have gone for four? Well, I don't know if it's a baseline. I mean, part of it too is, you know, minority shares being sold, sold versus uh, majority shares being sold. You know, we saw like the, the Bucks. Uh, we saw Mark Lazary sell his share of the team, right, uh, to Jimmy Haslam. And I think that was reported as $3.5 billion valuation. That's a pretty big number for a team like Milwaukee, mm-hmm. right? Like Phoenix is in a, what, I think the eighth largest market in the U.S. Milwaukee is obviously much, much smaller. And, and that percentage stake is, I think I heard that Mark Lazare has roughly like 25 to 30%. Um, so that's even a smaller share without perhaps the guaranteed control um, that Matt Ishbia got. So I, I don't know that, uh, that there's like a, a baseline to these things. Now they're all kind of market dependent too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how far away you are from like a New York city or an LA or San Francisco or Miami or something like that. Um, you know, what real estate is attached to your team that, you know, the, the franchise owns all that stuff goes into 
play for how much like these teams go for it, you know it's more than just i think like okay team plus city it's also team plus city plus um do you own your building do you own the land around your building right like, right Portland is kind of in an in, in between space there because the Blazers own the Moda Center, the actual arena itself, but they don't own the Memorial Coliseum, which is right next door, or the parking lots around the arena. That stuff is still owned by the city, but the just the arena itself, the Blazers do own. So that I would think would drive up the price a little bit. Whereas with the Suns, the Suns went for four billion for just the Suns and the Mercury. They don't the, the city of Phoenix, I believe, owns the arena. Yeah, I think the footprint center is owned by by the city. You're right. Yeah, and so, I mean, it, I'm curious. We'll we'll see. Like, I'm still trying to figure out. You know, like you said, what the Hornets went for. Um, I think that was something that had been out there for a while in terms of Michael Jordan's interest in selling it if he could. And so you had three sales um, this past season of NBA teams, right? Um, and it's a lot for one year, and With so it's probably not a coincidence. Yeah, with the bucks. It's Do we know what they went for yet? I, I believe it was reported as three point five billion as the valuation. Okay. Um, so, you know, I don't know. If, I don't know yet if that includes whenever that gets approved, taking over um, Mark Lazarus' control of the team for the remaining time he has. Uh, I think it's contractually like stated that him and Wes Eden split control every five years, right? Um, so it'll be very curious. I, I don't know what a team like the Blazers would go for. Part of that is just market conditions, too. Um, they have to keep finding really, really, really rich guys who want to buy teams. Um, and, they, you know, the NBA keeps finding avenues to allow people in to buy minority shares as well. Well, the Blazers have a buyer. It's just a matter of, I mean, there's at least one that we know of who's got the money and has the juice to do it. It's just a matter of when that uh, that happens. Yeah, that, yeah. Two, that, that, that $2 billion offer it seemed like a way to jump you know the the bidding but also it seemed like a low ball offer to that's me. way low um, no i think i think that i don't think that was a serious offer i think that was just uh putting it out there publicly that phil knight wants to buy the blazers i think the eventual number is going to probably be like three or 3.2 or something like that i don't know i haven't done my i haven't done my cap tables yet my pnls on the blazers yeah we'll we'll see mike this was this was really great this was really uh I learned a lot from it. I'm sure my listeners learned a lot from it too. I, you know, you you cover this stuff as well as anybody. Do you have anything coming up at the Athletic that you want people to keep a lookout for? Uh, I probably should have something to sell, but I don't. I'll probably <laughs> write something uh, soon enough, just like with some initial impressions of the yeah. new CBA. Um, stuff like that. Playoffs are starting. I don't know. Um, are you really doing what I'm doing and waiting? Because I'm gonna. I want to write about this too, the CBA stuff and like how it impacts the Blazers. But I want to wait until we actually have the term sheet, so that I'm not just going off of like what Woj and Shams have reported. Yeah, I mean, me. It's. I'm also trying to just like you know, you hear some things, you want to nail it down before right. you're writing about it. See if yeah. what you hear is accurate. Not obviously, don't write about it. Um, <laughs> so it's it's also that. And, uh, yeah, just really trying to get a sense of the whole thing. It's, you know, you want to make sure that all the different things that you hear um, and, and just the, all the – even the stuff that's been reported about the CBA, you have a full understanding of how the right. system's going to work, right? Yeah. Cool. Well, Mike, thanks a lot for doing this again. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Sean.